Well, I'd ask you to turn with me to Jonah, the book of Jonah. Last summer, while I was doing my internship in uh, New Brunswick, we went through the book of Jonah. So this morning, I'd like to do the introduction to Jonah, just verses 1 through 3, and then this afternoon, we'll finish chapter 1. Lord willing, two weeks from now, I'll be here again, and then we could do chapter 2 and 3. And perhaps in the future, I'll come back and we'll do chapter 4 and wrap it up. But this morning, we'll do just verses 1 and one through 3. But we'll read the entirety of the chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled their cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, that the, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard, to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased.
from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, I think if you were to ask many Christians today, if you were to just take a broad sweeping survey of them and ask what the book of Jonah is all about, some might say, well, it's about God teaching Jonah a lesson. Perhaps they would say, well, it's about the fish or something like that. But what's the book of Jonah about? Well, I would put before you this morning that it's not about the storm. That it's not just about a prophet. It's not about the fish. It's not about the city of Nineveh or that plant and the ferocious worm that devoured it. It's not about Jonah's attitude in chapter 4. It doesn't just make a good children's story Bible book. No, rather, if we were to ask the question honestly from the book of Jonah, what's this about? And we were to read through it carefully and taking note of each section and of the words and think through it and pray through it, we would find that the book of Jonah says something other than just it's a story of Jonah. We notice that this book is about the sovereignty of God. If you read through it, you find that it comes up again and again that the Lord appointed. <clears throat> Jonah is an appointed prophet of God. The message that God sends, it's God's message. The storm is appointed by God. The fish is appointed by God. The plant is appointed by God. The worm, the sun, the wind, it's all appointed by God. But God is especially sovereign over the souls of people. That's what this book is emphasizing. That the Lord is sovereign over salvation. We could summarize the book of Jonah like this. God is sovereign over salvation. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. It's a passage that Jonah quotes in chapter 4. It's from Exodus 33, verse 19. This book is about the salvation of the Lord, that he is sovereign over it, and that he will give his salvation to whom he pleases. And so as we open up this book this morning, we just want to look at introductory matters, we could say. We're going to walk through verses three, 1 through 3, and we're going to use those verses to understand the context, historical context and biblical context of the book of Jonah. 
And so we'll do this in three sections. We'll see the commission, the command, and the flight. The commission, the command, and the flight. Well, the book of Jonah starts with the word now. It could be translated once upon a time, in a sense. This book is a historical fact. However, in the last couple hundred years, there have been many, unfortunately, who have claimed that the book of Jonah is a fiction. Now, this isn't the world claiming this. This is biblical scholars, men who make their life in studying the Bible. They claim it's a fiction. They claim it's a parable. They claim maybe it's a a fable. It just has a lesson for us. It's not historical. But that's not how Jonah saw this. Jonah begins with a very particular Hebrew word to emphasize that this really happened. Not only that, we see that our Lord in the New Testament agrees. Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For there they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah was a real prophet. Nineveh was a real city. That fish that swallowed Jonah was a real fish. And that's how we are to read this book even today. This book is the Word of God. It's divinely inspired. And it has real spiritual implications for you and me today. So it says there, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now again, at first glance, these words may seem insignificant. We've read them before. The word of the Lord came. But these words are used by God to commission his servants for a particular task. You think of Hosea or Joel or Micah or Zephaniah. We see through these words that Jonah, we could say, is an ordained or an appointed prophet of the Lord. He's called to do exactly what God commands him. Notice that it's the word of the Lord. This isn't Jonah's message. This isn't Jeroboam's message. This isn't somebody else's message. This is God's word. And the prophet was God's servant. Jonah was commissioned. He was a chosen servant of the Lord. But who is this Jonah, the son of Amittiah? I mean, what do we know about him? Do we know much or anything about him historically? Well, if we were to turn back to 2 Kings 14, 23 to 29, we'd find Jonah, the son of Amittiah. There's just a very brief mention of him. So this is what we know of Jonah. He lived in the time of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II is the great-grandson of Jehu, the crazy chariot rider. Kids, you remember that story? Jehu, he drives like Jehu was said. This is in around the year 700. It's about the 700s, roughly. Jonah is from Gath-Hefer. Now that's 12 miles 
uh, west of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun. His predecessors are Elijah and Elisha. Now Jonah was given a message of expansion to the tribes, to the ten tribes, the northern tribes of Israel. He was given a message of blessing. Now this wasn't because Israel was living in a godly manner. It's not because they were worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. Rather, it's because if you read 2 Kings, God pitied them. God felt sorry for them because of their affliction. We know from 2 Kings that Jeroboam, it says, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Jonah's contemporaries, Hosea and Amos, who were prophesying exile, said they do not know how to do right. Israel had fallen so far, they no longer even knew right from wrong. And yet Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, came with a message to this wicked nation, Israel, to this wicked king, Jeroboam II, gave a message of expansion and blessing to them. Well, we could say that Jonah then is like a soldier. He's waiting for a command from his Lord. He's waiting to hear what his next charge is, where he will be sent to next. And the command comes. The Lord says to Jonah, Arise, go. Now this is a double command. It's not just go, it's arise, go. It's another formula for commissioning prophets. We see it in 1 Kings and in Jeremiah 13 and Ezekiel 3. And it carries a sense of urgency to it. Arise, now, go, immediately. There's to be no delay. Slow obedience or half obedience is no obedience. John Calvin said, It is a genuine proof of obedience when we simply obey God. However numerous the obstacles which may meet us. It is a genuine proof of obedience when we simply obey God. Now notice that the command here. Notice how simple the command is. And if you think about it, the commands of God are actually quite simple. The Lord said to Jonah, Arise, go. The Lord says to husbands, Love your wife. The Lord says to wives, Submit to your husbands. The Lord says to children, Obey your parents. Be diligent in your work, employees. Students, be faithful in your work. The commands of the Lord are really, in a sense, not complicated. What we see in Jonah is that it becomes complicated because of our sinfulness when we rebel against the Lord and do not obey 
his commands. But where's Jonah supposed to go? I mean, he's a prophet of the Lord. He's a prophet to Israel. So if we were first-time readers, let's say we were Jews reading this, we would think the next thing would be, you know, go to Jeroboam, go to Israel, go to Judah. But the next word is to Nineveh, that great city. <laughs> Nineveh, that's, that's not Israel. That's a pagan nation, a pagan city. In fact, that's in Israel's enemy. We first read of Assyria, where Nineveh is the capital of, in Genesis 10. Nineveh was built by Nimrod, a mighty man, we read, the great-grandson of Noah. Now, we have historical records of the man who built Nineveh. The history books, they call him Sargon. We know from history that he lived about 2,300 or 2,100 B.C. That's 1,600 years before Jonah. By the time Jonah comes to Assyria, to Nineveh, Assyria is a world power. They're 900 kilometers northeast of Israel in northern Iraq. You may ask me, what's so significant about this people? Why would going to Nineveh be a big deal? Well, you have to understand who Nineveh was to understand the book of Jonah. Jonah's reaction to the Lord's command doesn't really make sense unless you understand what he was called to do. Nineveh, we already said, was a pagan nation. In fact, they were a brutal nation. Mercy simply was not in their vocabulary. They ruled with ruthlessness, with inhumanity. I won't describe everything to you, but let me just give you a very brief description how these people of Assyria struck fear into nations. When they conquered a nation with their armies, the huge armies they had, they didn't just take captives and take them back. No, they brutalized them. They would behead them. They would flay them alive. They would dismember them while they were alive. They would burn them alive and impale them alive. Egypt was so afraid of Assyria that they paid them long before the Assyrian army ever came to the borders of Egypt. The kings of Assyria and Nineveh thought they were divine. They thought they were gods. They had to outdo each other in violence. Every successive king had to be more violent than the previous one to prove he was divine. Human life was cheap. Violence was religion. If Nimrod of Genesis 10 is the same as Sargon of the history books, we know that already 1,600 years before Jonah comes to Assyria, this nation had abandoned God. Listen to what one author said about them. When the God of justice, grace, peace, and love 
is replaced with false deity, the character of God, the characters of, characteristics of God are replaced as well. When religion is not based upon the law and commandments of God, false beliefs have no standard from which to base right and wrong. Should remind us of Romans 1, the decline of mankind. And yet God has not ignored the evil of this nation. Hebrews tells us no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are um, naked and exposed to his eyes, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so the Lord says to Jonah, to Nineveh, Jonah, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. In chapter 1, we're not told what Jonah was to cry out against Nineveh. We really don't know. He was simply told, go, preach. Why? Because their evil has come up before me. Reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their evil was so wicked. Jonah may not even have known what he was supposed to go preach. He was simply commanded to go. Now perhaps you're already drawing parallels to our own nation. A nation that seems to just be running headlong into all sorts of wickedness. Abortion, euthanasia. We could say life is cheap. Violence seems to be a religion. It almost seems to be religious to see how far you can push the envelope. Every sort of immorality you can imagine. Just as you think it's as bad as it could get, they think of something else. But you know, we actually know what the message is, don't we? It's not like in Jonah 1 here where God says, just go. No, God has said, go, but here's the message. And the message for us as Christians, what will be for Jonah as well, is not, first of all, politics. It's not social justice. It's not our personal rights. It's not, we don't go out into the world and just talk about sports, holidays, the weekend, our kids. We're called to go proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our message is Christ. We can stand in a, in a line on a street holding signs declaring how wicked this world is, but if we never get to Christ, we've failed. It's about Christ. Jesus said, I am the vine, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the door, I am the way and the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We could declare politics all day. 
But if we don't get to Christ, we've missed it. We haven't been faithful messengers of our Lord. We are to declare Jesus Christ, Him crucified, Him risen, Him ascended, and Him crowned. That will change society. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we, are you about Jesus Christ? Or are you running? Are you running like we're going to see next in Jonah? Running from your call to be a light to the nations. Verse 3 here says to us, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. We have a dramatic contrast. That's what Jonah's putting here in verse 3 for us. He says, but. It's a sharp contrast. Rather than prompt obedience, it's complete disobedience. To Tarshish and the Mediterranean Sea. Now, we don't know where Tarshish exactly was. Nobody has ever found Tarshish unless they've found it in the very recent past and I just haven't come across the article yet. But as far as we know, we don't know where it is. Well, we do know that it's in the south or southwest um, part of the Mediterranean Sea somewhere. It's away from Israel. The point is that it's the farthest known part of the world to the Jews. They knew nothing past Tarshish. That, that was the limit point is it's opposite direction, the opposite direction. Notice it's from the presence of the Lord. This comes up twice in verse 3. And you've got to ask the question, did Jonah really think he was going to run from the presence of the Lord? Well, I think we have our answer just by even considering the fact of what was said in, in uh, the later verses when Jonah declares who he is, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah acknowledges that God is everywhere. Not only that, if you think about where God called him to go, it was to Nineveh, 900 kilometers away from Israel. That would have been the way the, away from the presence of the Lord if Jonah was thinking physically. Rather, what Jonah is saying is, I want to be relieved of my prophetic duties. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm handing in my resignation papers. I'm hanging up my tool belt. I'd rather give up all the blessings of being the prophet of the Lord and the child of God than go through with this one command. I'd rather give up communion with God fellowship with my fellow prophets and believers, then obey you, O Lord. That's what Jonah is saying. When we sin, we need to remember that all sin is willful sin. There is not a single sin that you or I have ever or ever will commit that was not committed 
willingly. We willfully commit sin, and every sin was done by our will to oppose God's will. When we sin, we are doing the same thing as Jonah. We're saying, you know, I, at this point, I'd just rather not be your child. I, I just, I want to do this thing rather than that. I'd, I'd rather not listen to you. It's no different than what Jonah's doing. Notice further that it says he went down. This is a theme that's going to follow right through chapter 1 and 2. There's, there's this descent that Jonah is making. Here he goes down to Joppa, to the coast of the Mediterranean, in the opposite direction. He goes down into the ship. Verse 3 in the Hebrew is particularly abrupt. He flees from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Joppa, finds a ship, pays the fare. Again, he goes down into the inner part of the ship to Tarshish away. The point the author is trying to make by the abruptness of this verse is that this is determined disobedience. You know, Jonah didn't just roll out of bed in the morning and type in the wrong address into his GPS and head the wrong direction. He didn't just happen to find a ship in Tarshish and have the money for it. He knew there would be ships in Tarshish. He knew where he was going. He knew what he wanted to do. It was willful, determined disobedience. Now you might think to yourself, what in the world possessed him to do this? Why would he be so determined to go this way? Well, I think we can understand a little bit. Not excusing the sin, but understand what's going through Jonah's mind. Jonah is a contemporary of Hosea and Amos. Those two prophets were proclaiming exile. They were proclaiming punishment on Israel. But also, Jonah is a prophet who would have known the law of God. Moses, in Deuteronomy 28, declared in the curses that if Israel disobeyed God, God would exile them. God would destroy them. Jonah knew this. Jonah quotes from the Pentateuch in chapter 4. And in Jonah's day, Assyria was in decline. We know from history that Assyria at this time in the 700s was under attack. They were shrinking. There were riots. There were famines. There was pestilence. There was upheaval in the monarchy. It was slowly being whittled away at. In Jonah's mind, we know from chapter 4 that he's thinking to himself, if I go to Nineveh and I preach, the Lord is going to use it to change Nineveh around. He's thinking the Lord's going to use me to grow Nineveh 
to destroy Israel. And Israel's my people. Could you imagine preaching the gospel to somebody that you knew, or at least were quite certain of, would be used maybe a hundred years down the road, not even a hundred years down the road, to destroy your family, your country, to wipe it out completely? Would you go with joy and gladness to preach the gospel to them? That's Jonah's situation, and yet it was still disobedience. And you know, it can be easy for us to be critical of Jonah. We can look at it and say, oh, what a clown. What a fool. He didn't obey the Lord's command. He should have just gone. It would have gone better for him. He wouldn't have got swallowed by this fish. It's easy to be critical when we stand back from a distance, isn't it? But I wonder if there's people in your life who you are unwilling to evangelize. Are there people in your life you just don't want to tell the gospel to? You just avoid it. You would not want to see them be a Christian. You'd rather go to Tarshish than tell them about Jesus. Perhaps we could think of an example. What if you were to meet Justin Trudeau on the street and he said to you, you're allowed to tell me one thing you think of me. Tell me one thing I should do different. What would you do? You'd say, well, get rid of abortion, you know, euthanasia, homosexuality, whatever it is. Is that the first thing that would come to your mind? Would you ridicule him? Get angry at him? Think about it. What would you do? Or as a Christian, would you say to him, you know, Mr. Trudeau, the first thing you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ. Mr. Trudeau, your soul is in danger. Someday you're going to stand before Jesus. and He's going to be your judge. And unless you repent and believe in Jesus Christ now, you cannot be saved. I urge you, I plead with you to believe in Jesus Christ. What would you do? Would that be your response? You see, I think we've got to realize that disobedience, all disobedience is sin. Even disobedience in presenting the gospel to people especially when we don't like them. We often make excuses for our sin, don't we? You know, he made me do it, she made me do it. They're not good enough for the gospel. Look at how wicked he is. Look at what he's done to our nation. Why should I present the gospel to him? We forget the cost of our own sin. We look at Jonah, we think, yeah, what a sinner. But we forget that every single one of our sins, every time we looked at our neighbors, that, ah, he smokes pot and drinks too much and has five girlfriends, can't be bothered with them. We're rejecting the call that the Lord has laid on our lives 
to be a light to the nations. We are forgetting what Christ has done for us. One author said, sin is costly. We're forgetting the cost of our sin. When we look at the book of Jonah, when we look at our own lives, we are called to remember the salvation of the Lord. This is what this book is calling us to. It's calling us to remember that you and I did not deserve this salvation one stitch. We've done nothing for it. It's God's sovereign love that he saved us. We forget the cost of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think about that cost? Do you think about that Jesus Christ suffered and died for your soul? You here claim to be a Christian today. And I trust that you are. But do you remember what Jesus Christ has done for you? That he suffered the wrath of God, a righteous man in the place of wicked people, in order that you may enjoy the communion and the fellowship of God. Do you remember that? And do you tell other people about Jesus? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, so often we look at ourselves and we think, ah, oh, we are the people. We declare with Israel in Jesus' time, we are Abraham's children. We forget that Christ said God could raise up children for Abraham from these rocks. Father, remind us of who we are. That we are but dust. That we are a people who had rebelled. That we did not deserve the least of your grace. Father, we pray that you would give us humble hearts to see that it is only because of your love that we are redeemed and that out of your love for us, you send Jesus Christ, that out of his love for you and for us, he gave himself, that out of your love, the love of the Father and the love of the Son, you sent the Spirit to dwell in us, to work new life in us, and to show us the love that the triune God has for us. To call us your people, to declare you are our God. Forgive us for forgetting this. Forgive us for holding it to ourselves, for being angry with others, 
who are living in wickedness, instead of bringing them the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling them to believe on Christ, to repent, to have faith. Father, may this be the message of your church, the gospel message of Jesus Christ and his saving work. Hear us, we ask, in Christ's name alone. Amen.